Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Racism is a social phenomenon. And even though the medical research community has relied heavily upon racism that treated black bodies as property that could be experimented upon, clinical medicine has actually been pretty slow to accept racism as a legitimate topic of examination. Health services, with its ties to the social sciences, has been somewhat more accepting of the notion that racism is a topic worthy of scholarly inquiry. But I should emphasize somewhat, as direct discourse about racism has actually been quite limited. Now, despite the squeamishness of mainstream institutions when it comes to talking about racism, a significant and robust body of research has arisen demonstrating a direct link between racism and health. The rich intellectual history of scholarship on racism and health is the topic of today's episode of A Health Podacy. I'm here with Ruth Zambrana, Distinguished University Professor in the Harriet Tubman Department of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Maryland College Park. Dr. Zambrana and her co-author, Dr. David Williams, published a paper in the February 2022 issue of Health Affairs, tracing the scholarly origins of the understanding of racism as a social determinant of health. We'll trace that history and consider its implications for health policy in our discussion today. Dr. Zambrana, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. I also want to thank the staff and Board of Health Affairs for the opportunity to include an article. I think that reflects the importance of both the genealogy and epistemology of a construct that has long, long been struggling to enter the conversation as a legitimate historical factor and concern. I also want to thank my co-author, as you mentioned, Dr. David Williams, for our deep engagement almost on a weekly basis in the production of this article. This is an incredibly rich piece, tracing intellectual history, which is something I don't think we do often enough. And let's hope that this conversation helps pull this scholarship fully into the mainstream. That's certainly our goal with the February issue as a whole. Let's begin with what has been commented on a fair amount over the last couple of years, which is that clinical medicine has been hesitant to think of racism as a topic worthy of study. It's too soft. We want to study clinical trials and double-blinded experiments. And if you bring in something like racism, it doesn't really belong. There's quite a history of that, isn't there? Yes. I think two things come to mind. One is that the biomedical paradigm is a cause and effect model. By its very nature, it fails to take into account the context in which people live. And that has been a major failure of the biomedical paradigm because we have not been able to decrease disparities. (laughs) Because if we only look at cause and effect, we cannot understand what contributes to that particular illness and and sustains it. I also think a second uh, factor in medicine is, and I think you addressed this before, the difference between racism and racist. So racism 
is not directly speaking about individual attributes. It is a social classification that really speaks to our perceptions based on phenotype that govern, and I think that's important, medicine, listen to me, that governs the distribution (laughs) of risk and opportunities and disproportionately impacts the life course chances and social health and outcomes. And I say of historically underrepresented groups in particular, and we are talking indeed about African-Americans, but we are also talking about Native Americans. We're also talking about Mexican-Americans and Puerto Ricans. And those are the four groups that were historically incorporated and where that for these groups, the impact of racism resonates throughout their life course and impacts their health. So, for example, medicine needs to take into account stress. What does constant vigilance do on the body, let's say, of African-Americans? It maybe contributes most likely to hypertension to high blood pressure, to cardiovascular disease, some of the highest rates, not only in the United States, but in the world. Can we look at that? So I think we have been able to push in a little bit in medicine, but we need to do more of that if we're going to in any way decrease disparity and increase equity. Now, the example you just gave is really interesting because, in essence, what you're doing is taking racism and putting it into the biomedical model and saying, you can stay in the biomedical model and and find how racism has effects. But in the health services field, where we aren't uh, tied to the biomedical model, it's not the frame that we bring, um, there's a long history in the social sciences far before the existence of health services as a field of looking at differential outcomes, status, uh, success rates, and health of people by first income, that's sort of where it most emerged, but then the obvious and high correlation between social exclusion and social disadvantage and low income led it quickly to move into race. So you cover this in, in more detail in the paper than we can in conversation, but in contrast to this biomedical focus on in medicine, talk a little bit about how racism emerges as a field in the social sciences. I think when we look at the social sciences and we go back, I'm a medical and community sociologist by training. I don't think, I have to say when I graduated, but it was <laughs> in the 70s, <laughs> the late 70s. Um We didn't talk much about race, ethnicity, um, and class. And as you know, class has been an issue that has been essentially absent in the discourses in U.S. social science. It has, again, wedged itself into the conversation periodically, but has not been in there. I think in the social sciences, we, we were doing a couple of things. I mean, we were, again, focused on the individual. So it was an individual-centered um, discussion of the groups. So blacks were put into linear models and all types of statistical models as an independent predictor. Black is not independent predictor. Black is the group that we are studying. So I think that with, so social science is as guilty of stereotyping 
and producing, if we go back to the 70s, I mean, Oscar Lewis, um, Moynihan, we have, I can go down a list of hundreds of social scientists who essentially saw low-income populations as low gratification in the medical sociology, low compliance, um, refused to follow doctor's orders, no-shows. There was a lot of work on no-shows. No one took into account. Maybe they didn't have childcare. They didn't have a car. And I had a lived experience. I have a postdoc in the medical school in Mount Sinai School of Medicine. And so I used the local public facilities for maternal and child health. And so I spoke with these women once a week. And again, the mistreatment. And then I would read it in the journals, how they were not interested in prenatal care. They didn't care. They did care but they were mistreated in these facilities. Um, so social science, and then the role of acculturation. They're taking Mexican-Americans who, have, who are 15th generation here and trying to look at acculturation. I mean, the literature, I have written two books on how not to study, for example, Latinos. Um, so I think the 19... Again, we mentioned this in the paper, and I think it's, it's very important. It was the entree of historically underrepresented voices who came from those communities, who in the 80s and 90s began to see, let's look at this this way. I have been there. These are all the conditions that contribute to, let's say, the types of um, no-shows that are there. They don't have this, they don't have that, etc. We also began to unravel the types of medical abuses for many of these individuals. My first article in 1979 is entitled Off to a Bad Start, which speaks about the prenatal conditions and how social determinants impacted their ability to get to prenatal care. And it's on African-American and Puerto Rican women in Harlem at that time. So social science and medicine, they opened their doors a little bit more in the 90s, I think. And we began to really look at how do we study racial and ethnic groups. And I think the entree of intersectionality, saying we cannot separate race, ethnicity, class, and place. Can't separate them. We have to look at them together. So this is sort of the academic uh, turmoil or shift that I think I experienced in my very brief time. I've never been an academic as a professional, but I've sure been a student. And, you know, I feel like we went through a phase, as you say, of quantitative analyses showing disparate circumstances, just as clinical medicine if you go back, attributed those differences to biological differences, biological inferiority, all of which was a myth, but that was the language of the time. I'd say in the social sciences, it was uh, rife with stereotypes of, uh, as you say, uh, uh, inability to delay gratification, inability to fit within social norms. And then you have this emergence of the voice of the people being studied saying, you're not really capturing reality. You may be capturing the data. You're not capturing reality. 
And then we see the emergence of this whole notion of institutional racism. We now refer more to structural racism, systemic racism. I know these are different terms, but the commonality is to say these differences are not, uh, uh, the, the examination of these differences must occur in the context of the institutions that created them. And that's a really different way of thinking about the world. And I, what I'm struck by is as strong as that movement was, when I look at health, both clinical and health services, I see this sort of fading out of that examination. So you you have this epiphany and a strong intellectual platform, but you but it's a very small number of people who follow it to its logical next step and continue the scholarship while the rest of both medicine and health services continue basically with these stereotyped approaches to race and ethnicity. Is that what you see? Yes. I think there has been a a blossoming of all this terminology which scares people, scares professionals, scares health services researchers, scares medical professionals, racism, systemic racism, institutional racism. They say, oh my God, that's not me. That's not me. And there's a need to step back and look at what, what these issues can mean in terms of knowledge production and decreasing disparity and equity, which is all our goals, health services, research, physicians, etc. It's important. So we moved, we are saying, this is not about being black. You don't put black in your um, multiple regression and say, oh, black has highly related to hypertension. <laughs> yes, we know that we're trying to look at the causes. So what is the context in which these individuals live and why are those conditions so embedded in their reality? So when we look at, so we're moving away from individually driven models. That's important. We got to take those independent factors and look at other factors. So I think what we're, where we have moved, and we make this point, and I would like to encourage people to read our chart. We do the different definitions. So institutional and structural racism have been talked about since the late 1800s, 1903. Many of the, if we look at the organizations, like the first White House Conference on Children, in 1909, if anyone is interested in reading that report, it talks about all the conditions in which children live that impact their health and well-being. If we look at the settlement movement, the, the, the rise of the social work field, the settlement movement also was attending to conditions. So institutions were brought in to rectify conditions, all those issues. So we were changing institutional practice. Now, what happens if our researchers and our physicians really look at institutions? If we look back, I think I just want to mention um, Shapiro's book, 2017. He has a chapter which is called The Hand of Government. And I've learned a lot about institutional racism. 
For example, our schools are uh, funded by real estate taxes. Do we all know that in low-income areas, those homes are pretty low, low stake? So when we take a couple of pennies and we put into the schools, our children, African-American, Mexican-American, Puerto Rican, Native American, are underprepared. So that's a disadvantage. They start with a disadvantage. Housing, redlining, mortgage denial. The issue of the socioeconomic status always intersect with race. Yes. So the bottom line here is to acknowledge that institutional policy is a major determinant of poor health outcomes, of disparities, would mean changing institutions and rectifying policy. As we say in the article, this acknowledgement would require shifting the paradigm in policy. And I think health affairs, I just have to say this, has been very brave and very bold in really doing this issue on structural racism. Because what we're saying is, okay, docs and health researchers, unless you change the paradigm and include institutional racism, you cannot get your answers. I hope that's clear because it is so important. Well, it is. And, um, What I want to reflect on is that we have this ascendancy over the last half a dozen years of the health sector attending to what it refers to as the social determinants of health and the relationship between that movement and the need to address structural racism is, I think, an area ripe for conversation. We'll have that conversation after we take a short break. Health Affairs Pathways is a new podcast series exploring the various avenues and alleyways of the healthcare system through a variety of storytelling. Unique series are created by fellows at the Health Affairs Podcast Fellowship Program. Join the fellows on their journey to unearth a new healthcare story on such topics as healthcare consolidation, independent primary care, health equity, and more. Our first season is a six-part series from Lolita Abiancar. Her series titled Piecemeal, examines how consolidation in healthcare is affecting independent primary care. Subscribe wherever you listen. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Ruth Zambrana about her paper on the intellectual roots of knowledge on racism and health. Before the break, we were talking a lot about the history and understanding of structural racism. But I want to turn our attention now to how it intersects with the major movements in the healthcare sector, which has seen over the last, as I said before the break, about half a dozen years, a renewed attention to the social determinants of health. Now, this is not a new topic, but it has gained ascendancy in part due to changes in payment where health systems are held accountable for health outcomes. And lo and behold, they've discovered that if they're going to actually improve health outcomes, they have to address the precursors. Now, we know there's a lot of correlation between people who face economic hardship and people who have difficulty affording the kinds of housing and food and safe living places that keep them healthy. And there are and have been written commentaries about how addressing social determinants will reduce 
health inequities. But those aren't movements about addressing structural racism. And I wonder if you can help our listeners differentiate the current framing of social determinants and addressing structural racism, and then the claim in your paper that in order to move forward, we need to think of structural racism as a social determinant. That's a a lot to ask you to respond to, but I hope you'll kick us off with a few thoughts. Like I said before, I think this is a very complicated question, and people tend to turn off very quickly because it feels insurmountable. So let me say that social determinants at its simplest level is structural racism. When we have the highest rates of obesity in Latino and African-American communities and low-income communities, it is because in the U.S., our food supply is unhealthy and is capitalist-driven. So the easiest way for many food companies to make money is to put the junkiest food, if I may use that word, (laughs) so elegant, the junkiest food. (laughs) I think we all know what you mean. (laughs) In these low-income neighborhoods, studies have shown that around schools where low-income kids go, they sell all the high-caloric, low-nutritional foods. And they have done studies comparing high-income white schools and low income. Okay, this is structural racism, and it's also social determinant. So how do we pass legislation? Really, this is where the policy comes in. And you know, we couldn't do everything in 5,000 words, so now I can talk about policy. Um, that's, what, that's part of the joy <laughs> of a podcast, is you can go well beyond the constraints of the paper. So how do we get the FDA and other policy wonks to really speak to the need to change our food industry standards. Many of our foods, so I've been doing this work, many of the foods are not allowed in the majority of uh, Western European countries. So that's one. Alcohol and drugs, uh, alcohol um, outlets, high numbers in low-income communities. I did a study of this... (laughs) I hate to say, 1979 also, where our children in Harlem, there were liquor stores every place. So that's one. Housing. Look at the situation we're in with public housing. There is lead. There is verm, um, what do you call, insects. There's cockroaches. There's rats. There's all kinds of things. And this is uncontrolled. So how do we develop a housing Uh, administration that will attend to this. Now, there are housing models throughout the United States, including Arizona and Los Angeles, where they use those housing projects to train people to provide them skills so that they can go out and find tech jobs, etc. So we know what to do. Healthcare. I mean, we need to have a universal healthcare system. It is a burden on our society to have a system where you're going on and off health insurance because you change your job because you don't have a job or because you become poor. That's a waste of money. We will always have a two-class system and that's okay, but we need to provide a basic universal system with dignity for low-income people in this country. And those of us who could afford it, 
can pay a little extra money to Blue Cross Blue Shield, who's always getting sued, you know, for <laughs> all kinds of stuff. And we'll pay them and we can get more elite health care. This is done anyway, so let's make it public. So how do we attend? The question becomes food, housing, education. Why can't the U.S. Department of Education, I mean, enough is enough. What we have seen is the numbers go down, low-performing schools. We don't need to test, to put all these tests in low-performing schools because they're going to perform low anyway. Why don't we have a system where the U.S. Department of Education gives at least equal monies to everyone? There will always be those who can add more, the parents. But at least we'll have an equal footing. America doesn't understand equality. They say we're equal. We're not equal if we're starting at different places. So this is social determinants and structural racism. Structural racism creates social determinants. To change social determinants, we need to change structural racism, which are the systems that operate. We need to address these systems that operate to deny people and deprivilege certain groups so that they continue to be struggling. And these, the stress of that struggle deeply affects their health. And also then the individuals in these systems who have a vested interest in maintaining them. How do we convince them that indeed if we change the system, they won't still have their privilege? That's the bottom line. So I'm really struck as you talk about the policy implications that most of what you talked about was what I would call sort of universal policies. Mm -hmm. uh, there was not a word about race in them. They were not targeted policies designed to address racism as a phenomenon. They were policies designed to, uh, I suppose, reverse some of the consequences of the maldistribution of resources that is an outgrowth of existing structural racism. So my question to you is, well, I guess I have two. One is, is that enough? And the second is, we have, it is, as you well noted, uh, when you talk about structural racism, you're, you're talking about systems and institutions. It doesn't need to be as threatening. But there is interpersonal racism as well, and there are people with racist views as well. And the question I would ask is, is the existence of that way of thinking one of the barriers to the kinds of universalist policies you describe? And if so, aren't we sort of just in a circle here where we say the way out is to do something that we can't get to because of the existence of racism? I think we have to understand that the hand of government in developing the policies it did was a very intentional and strategic set of policies to disadvantage one group over the other. So we need to face that as a nation. So I did not use racism because these racial and ethnic groups, these four that we are talking about, 
are disproportionately affected by these policies, um, including salaries, including education, including opportunity. Opportunity is diminished considerably by these policies. So it's now the second part of institutional racism are the agents, let's call them, the individuals who exist and live in these institutions and who arbitrarily make decisions on how those policies and practices will be implemented. So the pharmaceutical industry can charge $1,000 for a pill because they want to, because they can. You know, a school principal can decide zero tolerance for these kids, and I am throwing them out of here because they're black, because they're Latino. And we have tons of examples of how that zero tolerance policy works. So then when we look at the research and all the studies on the agents, the institutional agents who practice criminal justice. Oh, my God. Criminal justice is like juvenile justice, child welfare. We have the medical profession up until recently doing experiments on foster children in Connecticut. These are the institutional agents who carry out institutional racism. Now, we know that we cannot change racism by saying to someone, hey, you're racist, <laughs> we want you to change. That's not going to work. So where can we at least start to elevate and to provide some opportunity towards a good start? It has to be a policy. I mean, we cannot, I think we cannot in America, we tend to do this. We cannot say, oh, well, we're going to have to change. No, we have to start someplace. And hopefully those who support institutional change, institutional policy change, will be the ones who then will serve as the agents in those systems. We will, I mean, right now, you know that our country is in chaos. I, I mean, I have been on earth a long time. I have not seen such ugliness in my, and I, I am a civil rights activist. I went through civil rights. I have not seen this type of division and tension and ugliness in my entire years in this world. And it is scary. It is scary for us. And let me just add to this a perspective from those of us who are social, who are race scholars and who are social activists and who believe in knowledge for social change. We are afraid that this is, we have, I just learned a new expression, um, which is, you know, we have been, we have done this rodeo before. And we are afraid that we may lose the moment again. So I think we have to act at the levels that we can. And I do believe it is policy and institutional change that we would start there.
So as we bring our conversation to a close, I want to come back to some of the academic uh, traditions now that we've spoken some about the role of policy and just ask you if you could reflect on some of the closing words of the paper where you say the U.S. is at a crossroads, it's a critical moment socially and intellectually, and you say the new terminology and framing of racism, which of course is not new, can be unsettling to some. And here's where I want to focus. It offers the opportunity to interrogate traditional frameworks that center on the characteristics or behavior of individuals or their presumed cultures to explain health disparities and to move science and policy toward an enhanced understanding of the critical role played by larger social, economic, historical, and institutional factors. So as we wrap up our conversation, what would you offer as the best way to take advantage of this moment intellectually to embrace the new terminology and change the way we look at these issues so that we don't lose this and return to a day where as the political attention to race and racism wanes, so does the academic attention. uh, And we find ourselves having the same conversation uh, a few decades from now, wondering where we went wrong. I think that our way forward is complicated because there is a real sensibility and fear particularly by liberals and progressives, that they will lose advantage if they support a, I'm being very honest here, if they support an entire revamping of our country, which I disagree with. I think advantages will always be here and it can be structured in that way. The restructuring requires the provision of a minimum level of dignity and human rights to the 70% approximately of people who live in very economically unstable lives, which is the working class and a significant portion of the middle class, except for the high-level prestigious professionals which is a small percentage. And if I could get that across and scream that in every street, that's what I would like Americans to know. I think the other thing is that we must continuously foreground history. America is stuck on this notion of progress and innovation. And it continues to deny history. But history is good because it helps us to advance and not go backwards. We are constantly going backwards. And one of the things that Dr. Williams and I try to do in this paper is to tell people, to inform people, this is not new, folks. We've been talking about this and we are so happy that has finally entered the conversation. And then the language. People are afraid of language, especially this type of language. It's almost like cursing. I mean, it scares them. 
you know? So if we could just stick to maybe institutional racism, I hate to say that we should make this mild. I know some of my colleagues will be mad at me, but we need to be conscious. We, those of us who are on sort of the other side of how America has developed and where we are and of the tensions. And the goal should be to reduce disparities and increase equity. So how do we take the language and expand those paradigms and work together, I think is a major conundrum. But I wanna say though, majority culture allies, scientists, need to take an active part in including the voice of historically underrepresented scholars who know the lived experiences of these groups. And that would be such an important start. NIH starts to, needs to start funding groups with these voices because we need to produce more knowledge as opposed to exclusionary practices Let's have inclusionary practices and let's be conscious, not be naive, that we are a very divided country and that many of those individuals in these institutions have grown up with a set of implicit biases that are probably unconscious but still exist there. And I just want to thank you again because I think the journal has taken a bold and courageous step forward. And I would like to see journals continue to do this, to say we're going to have one article, we're going to try to publish articles from those who know the community, and then you have to find the reviewers. Then you, It's an extra job, but I'm hoping that you will all take that extra step for us to make America a better country. Well, Dr. Zambrana, thank you for the encouragement at the end. It is an extra job, but it's one we take on happily. Uh, thank you for the scholarship and guidance on this uh, important topic that has not received as much scholarly attention as it deserves, and for your uh, advice on how to institutionalize some of these changes so we aren't repeating this conversation. I like that history is good. I'll try to remember that. And with that, I say thank you, and thanks for being my guest on A Health Policy. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>